Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Victoria Lupașcu, one of the hosts for the Asian Studies channel by the New Books Network. Today, we are here with Dr. Kimberly Ens Manning, principal of the Simone de Beauvoir Institute and professor of political science and women's studies at Concordia University in Montreal. Hello, Dr. Manning, and welcome to our channel. Thank you. Uh, thank you for agreeing to talk to us about your new book, The Party Family, Revolutionary Attachments and the Gendered Origins of the State Power in China, published by Cornell University Press in 2023. And, you know, I'll just start by getting to, to know you better and your work. And I was wondering whether you could tell us how you came to this project. You know, what got you interested in the relationship between gender, family and the state in People's Republic of China? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you very much for asking me to join you today. I'm really very happy to, and honored to have this opportunity. Um, I guess I would start by saying that uh, I've always been interested in gender and politics. And because my own university studies were uh, prefaced by a year in the People's Republic of China, oh. uh, a pivotal year, 1988-89, um, yeah. I really got pulled in to wanting to better understand mm-hmm. politics in the People's Republic. Uh, gender has always been an underlying interest for me. Uh, and uh, but but the way I came to this project in particular was um, a advisor of mine in graduate school suggested that I look at the Great Leap Forward, mm. which was a large mobilization that took place in 1958, 59, and 60. And she said, look, you know, there's beginning to be some work on this, but very few people have sought to try and understand the relationship between gender and the Great Leap Forward. And, 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 that's, and that was a big oversight because uh, the Great Leap Forward involved probably historically the largest mobilization of women in history. And by that, I mean women were, were um, basically recruited by the state to do field work. Uh, children were uh, looked after in, in daycares and there were communal, communal dining halls set up um, in the countryside in particular as well. So this was a very large mobilization that took place that hadn't been looked at through, I would say, a feminist lens previously. Yeah. And so that pulled me into that work. Um, but I will say that um, though my, my original interest was women activists during the Great Leap Forward, um, as the research continued, and this has been a very long project, it mm-hmm. spanned 20 years that I've been working on it, wow. um, it also coincided with my own journey uh, to becoming a parent myself. And I became increasingly interested in the ways that institutions, state institutions, global institutions, discourses, and emotions uh, shape women's leadership and engagement with the state. Uh, And I came to the conclusion that it's pretty much impossible to understand women's leadership without understanding the state, just as it is impossible to understand the state without understanding women's leadership. And it's this central, what I would say is a recursive formation that I wanted to find a way to really show Mm -hmm. and explicate. Amazing. And uh, yeah, the, the research spanning over, you know, two decades is really impressive. Thank you. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm really excited to talk about it. And, you know, it's, uh, it's spanning over two parts. 
uh, in the book. Uh, there are four, uh, four chapters in the first part and five chapters in the second part. And of course, we have the introduction and uh, conclusions. And um, I will quote a little bit from the book, from the introduction. Uh, to give a better idea of of, of what is uh, happening, and um, you know, I'll start by saying that the book argues uh, that family ties played a central role in the state's capacity to respond to crisis before and after the foundation of the People's Republic of China, and central to family ties were women as both subjects and leaders of reform, and uh, what I call political attachments or the effective enactment of family ties in political struggle shape how the state apparatus is imagined, constructed. And contested. End of quote. So I wanted to ask you a bit um, of conceptual clarification here, especially on the terms such as attachments, um, and you know um, how that is related to the idea um, regarding state formation, imagination, and contestation through women's position in the family unit. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. So, I mean, I think what I would start by saying is uh, I kind of need to locate us a little bit in my home discipline sure. of political science, yeah. um, in which the state is typically imagined in such a way that the labor of women and the role of the family um, are both rendered invisible. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and Max Weber's definition of the state, uh, for example, does just that. And it, this is a definition that has long been um, drawn upon uh, in, in state society studies and, and studies that are considering the state. So Weber defines, Weber desi- defines the state as the power to extract and allocate resources, manage populations, and to control, and I'm quoting here, a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence. Um, yeah. So what I have actually tried to show in this book is that um, women have been and continue to be involved in all dimensions of these facets, including in the periods leading up to the foundation of the People's Republic, um, as, as well as in its earliest years. Um, but they do so in ways that is both contributing to and questioning what the state should look like. Mm-hmm what its priorities should be, how it should be enacted. Um, And so one of my central arguments is that women, family, and state are not discrete enactments, but are mutually constituted. Um, Now, attachments play a key role in this mutual constitution. Um, And this this work, I mean, sort of my work with, you know, affect theory really began, I would say, maybe about 10 years ago when I really started to see others work with it in relationship to social movements. Um, there's been quite a bit of work done in the China field now, particularly by anthropologists. Um, but my my understanding of it also began to take shape in the context of my own advocacy as a parent, mm-hmm. um, and particularly um, trying to get certain bills, get legislation passed. Yeah. And and so for me, as I was engaged in the, that work as a feminist, but also seeing how my own agency and my own understanding of parenthood mm-hmm. and motherhood were being constructed in ways that I almost felt like I had no control over, right? Right, That were in a sense defining how my own advocacy was appearing, if that makes sense. And so, um, and also, um, you know, shaping um, not just, not only roles, but also desire itself. And and so for me, uh, those pieces as I continued to deepen into my work on this book project, also began to clarify in the sense that 
um, what we are being um, compelled to do mm-hmm. isn't always um, visible even to ourselves. And, um, and so it's those pieces that I've also struggled to understand in the context of this, this very large and um, in many ways dramatic process of state formation and the involvement of um, not just women, but families in that process. Absolutely. And it is such a momentous, right, um, moment uh, situation, right, in, in 1949 and right before it and, of course, uh, after, right, the people, the, the formation of the People's Republic of China mm-hmm. and then the ways in which, um, right, workers were, the identity of workers was, mm-hmm. you know, politically defined and then how women were brought in uh, mm-hmm. through different means. And mm-hmm. we'll see uh, in one of the chapters, right, about we're going to talk about the marriage law mm-hmm. and how that changed, right, how women Mm-hmm. Um, got to see themselves and should have seen themselves in many ways, mm-hmm. right? So I think it's it's definitely, um, I, of course, this is running through the book, but that's just one example, mm-hmm. right, of, mm-hmm. of different ways of seeing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Amazing. And, um, you know, before we go into the thick of, of the chapters, um, there's an analysis of different states of activism mm-hmm. um, that appears through the book. And um, I think it's something that the audience should, should hear more about it. Yeah. And, you know, what were some of the primary states of activism mm-hmm. for women and how were they related to the party family? Yeah. OK, thank you. So, um, you know, what I'm calling here states of activism um, is really my way of, of trying to get at this notion that I was just talking about. And mm-hmm. that is um, different people come into politics for different reasons. Sure, sure. Uh, um, and in, in the book, I talk about fields as a way of trying to understand these um, the, the the different discourses, mm-hmm. the different um, family ties, uh, the different practices in which um, people were engaged, education that they're being exposed to or not exposed to, sure. and so um, part of what I'm I'm trying to to do here is move away a little bit attend from a tendency again in my home discipline of political science. Um, in particular in the the recent uh, literature on gender and politics, where women um, are, in a sense, goal-driven in uh, or or shown to be uh, goal-driven in a way that might cohere with a a liberal feminist understanding Mm. of what their what their ideals might be or what it is they are um, struggling for. And what I wanted to do was to try and open that up a little bit and, um, and actually try and map, do some mapping of the kinds of orientations, uh, the kinds of desires, the goals, what, what was meaningful uh, for uh, activists and leaders who were engaged in these processes. And, and so for me, um, that's where I, I sort of landed on this conception of a state of activism. And the states of activism that I discuss in the book, and there are four main ones, and I, as I argue it, these are not um, by any means, um, there, there's no limit to the number of states of activism, mm-hmm. but these are the ones that I felt materialized most frequently in terms of the research I did, which was both based on interviews um, over, uh, I interviewed over 160 
uh, folks and the, the kind of archival work. And then also the work I was doing looking at elite level uh, speeches and memoirs and biographies. Um, and so I really came to identify four. Um, one was uh, the new woman, uh, second social reformer, third woman warrior and fourth loyal soldier. And I can talk a little bit more about these as they, they materialized um, at different moments in terms of this process of state formation. Um, but in a sense, uh, if you were to look, for example, at the new woman, which has long been um, identified as a, um, an influencing strain in the Chinese Communist Party and leading to things like the enactment of the early marriage law yeah. um, in 1950. And that is that there was a, a strong sort of liberal uh, human rights course that was circulating in the 19-teens and early 1920s, including among the earliest founders of the Chinese Communist Party. And this idea that women um, had a right to exist independent of families, independent mm. of spouses and fathers, that they um, became and realized as a sort of full um, full people as they pursued education, as they pursued professional careers, as they engaged in romance, right? Like there was this whole uh -huh. kind of um, idea. And, and, you know, when the, the, the primary um, leader who advocated um, in particular for one-party petition divorce, which we'll talk more about in a minute, mm -hmm. um, Deng Yingchao, but Deng Yingchao, of all the leaders of the Chinese Communist Party, I think really we can identify her, um, one of the most influential states of activism for her really emerged out of the, this new woman mm -hmm. conception. So it's, it's not, um, these are, are, are not uh, ideal types in a Weberian sense. And, and, and part of what I'm trying to argue is that, you know, the same activist may have two or three states of activism informing how she understands herself and her leadership. And in right. fact, that's part of the contradictions that were at play, right, over time, yeah. um, including for Deng Yingchao. Um, but, you know, one of the things that Deng Yingchao said uh, as they were preparing to roll out the marriage laws, she said, you know, look, you know, women should have the right to, to, to choose their true love, mm. right? Like really using that kind of language of May 4th, wow. that, that language of choice and, um, and almost a kind of romantic love. Uh, now that would be quickly backtracked, but mm -hmm. we can see that in the new, new woman mm. um, state of activism, that kind of uh, dimension really materializing and persisting over time mm -hmm. for some of the activists and leaders. Wow, that's that's very important, you know, and to see how that persists over yeah. time, right? And I mean, the, the May 4th, right, um, legacy, uh, we can see it, right, also in films and literature mm -hmm. in the 20s, mm -hmm. well, 30s mostly, right? Yeah. We, we have these discussions and articles about it and how it kind of skewed left or it skewed, you know, mm -hmm. like politically um, different than mm -hmm. what was intended sometimes. Yeah. And you know, speaking of May Fourth, that's the the title of the first chapter mm -hmm. uh, from um, from Part One: States of Activism. And one of the main arguments here regards the state's relationship in assisted politics 
critical in public visibility to women and children as an indicator of cultural, social, and political progress. Mm -hmm. That's following in a way, right, from the the May 4th ideology. Mm -hmm. And the chapter argues that, quote, materialist articulations of the May 4th era drew on and contested aspects of pan-Asian materialism and maternalism Mm -hmm. embedded in Christian missionary work, end of quote. And, you know, um, I mean, there are many questions I have here, but one of them is what was the position and the role played by maternalism Mm -hmm. in China from the Mm -hmm. beginning of the 20th century until later in the Maoist era? Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking of two contexts of the family home and the home of the nation, right? So Mm -hmm. how it goes between Mm -hmm. the two levels and women's visibility as good wives and mothers, but also as good citizens, revolutionary Mm -hmm. citizens, Mm -hmm. women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, So, I mean, I guess I would say for me, the May 4th movement has been discussed uh, at great length. And and for me, you know, I mentioned um, to you before we started this talk that I was in Beijing in 1988 and 1989. And so I was there during the student movement uh, as it grew over the course of the spring of 1989. And one of the central articulations Uh or or kind of formations of of the mobilization was around um, memorializing May 4th and drawing on that historical historical moment. Um, So, you know, from a very early moment in my own Mm -hmm. um, understanding of of Chinese history and politics, I could see that really playing out. Um, But I I revisit May 4th in part because I want to show how um, starting at that time and and persisting right through until the 1950s, and then I would argue reappears again in the 1980s, maternalism itself was playing a really important role. And now when I when I say maternalism, um, it's it's not limited to an idea of you know women should be mothers taking care of children. And I think it's it's really important to understand that this is a broader geopolitical um, set of institutions and um, in some cases uh, organizations that were um, trying to build a society in which. Um, women and children uh, were uh, taken care of, had received education and health care, and were able to thrive in a way um, that showed, as I, as we were just discussing here, that and we're actually demonstrating uh, the the civilizational status of. Right. Um, the nation and state. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you can see that um, in multiple examples, um, there's been a lot of work done on this uh, with respect to Europe and, and North America as well. Um, but I really wanted to bring China into the frame because uh, there were so many um, ways in which that work was intersecting and then shaping how the Chinese Communist Party understood what its priorities were. And that included um, really ensuring um, this notion that that women and children were protected, supported, um, including through the education, uh, through the, the lens of education and healthcare in particular. And um, so in a sense, the May 4th movement in this book is, is really a revisiting of that moment and showing the organizations, including organizations like the Young Women's Christian Association, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, 
how those organizations and how their leaders were um, would go on to um, build movements within China, and some of them would even go on to play a leadership role after the foundation of the People's Republic. Right, and I think right. So the the education, um, I, I mean, for lack of a better word, movement, but you know, just the um, the activism for education, right, mm-hmm. and just healthcare education as mm-hmm. well, and public health um, were. I mean, saw women, right, being very involved. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, the by the time the People's Republic was established, I mean, this was something that was happening in the Republican era mm-hmm. under the Guomindong government, yep. which was the government that was... Um, uh, which was the government that were the party that was was uh, had formed the government in China prior to the establishment of the People's Republic. There were um, an increasing number of women serving as public health officials and yeah. physicians, far more than in many other parts of the world. Right. And these women would go on to play key roles in the bureaucracy that would be maintained across the 1949 divide. Mm-hmm. And so we need to understand how those institutions yeah. traveled, um, but also how the party families, which I talk about um, mm-hmm. in the book as well, uh, also worked to advocate for and uh, assure for the establishment of women's and children's health and public health as being a priority of the People's Republic from the outset. Absolutely. Yeah, and you know, I mean that varies and we'll see it through through the chapters, right? The the healthcare and you know the relationship with, with the famine, right? towards the end of the Great Leap Forward. So that, you know, it's a, it, it becomes a different topic as we, yeah. we go through through the decades, but there's definitely an impetus um, mm-hmm. right d- during the Republican era and after, mm-hmm. right, to, mm-hmm. uh, towards these, these goals. And um, you're mentioning um, structures and institutions and uh, chapter two, uh, the Chongqing Coal- uh, Coalition, mm-hmm. gives us a much more detail about the mechanics that gave rise to the All China Democratic Women's Federation, a very important important, you know, um, organism that was uh, yeah. at the time. And um, also it built on policies and reforms proposed and enacted before the formation of the PRC. So what role did the party families play in the state building agenda? And what was the legacy of the pre-49 period? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I had mentioned a moment ago, Deng Yingchao. Yeah. And uh, she was married to Zhou Enlai, who mm-hmm. eventually became the, the premier of the People's Republic of China. Both were very high party uh, members. Um, and uh, and before the establishment of the PRC, um, um, both were playing active roles in many ways. Now, Deng Yingchao was always affiliated with what became known as Funu uh, Gongzuo, or, or women work. Um, but I, 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 I mention them because shortly after the Japanese um, invaded China in 1937, mm-hmm. um, women gathered together from um, across uh, different parties, including the Chinese Communist mm-hmm. Party and the Guomindang, and um, were um, held some large conferences to try and figure out how are we going to address this moment together? How do we, in a sense, um, create a united front Mm -hmm. um, to respond to this crisis? And now there had already been a rapprochement between 
the two governments, the um, the Guomindang, the Republican Party, and um, and the Chinese Communist Party. Um, but what I part of what I argue in the book is that women who took part um, in these conferences and would go on to establish organizations particular to cope with the crisis of refugees fleeing from the invasion of Japan. Yeah. Um, the, the, um, the hunger, the displacement, uh, the uh, young, young children and babies who'd lost their parents yeah. or had been separated from parents. Um, it was those organizations, those women's organizations that effectively responded to that crisis mm -hmm. and in so doing created infrastructure that would then be built upon in the post 49 period some 15 years later. Yeah. Right. So it's yeah. a kind of a remarkable um, story in that yeah. respect. Right. Okay. Um, and 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 part of what made it work. Mm -hmm. were the family relationships which uh, crossed over the parties, right? Um, now, one of the most famous is Song Qingling, who um, was the widow of Sun Yat-sen, who has been credited with an effect, um, sort of is considered the father of, of, the, of modern China. Right. And um, he passed in 1927. Uh, I believe it was 1927. Don't hold me on that. Or 1925. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going I'm to have 20s. to check my... Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but after his passing, mm -hmm. Song Qingling really... Um, really stepped in as a, um, in a sense, a linkage between the two parties. She mm -hmm. was always very left um, and eventually joined um, the International Communist Party. She was never, she never became a member of the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. But she, through her relationship with Stalin mm -hmm. and um, through members of the Chinese Communist Party, as well as through uh, the Guomindang. So mm -hmm. her sister, was married to Chiang Kai-shek. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So you have these very complex ties. And, and so when, for example, Chiang Kai-shek in 1936 was kidnapped yeah. by a um, one of his generals who was very unhappy with the fact that he was fighting the Chinese communists and not fighting the Japanese, um, that was the negotiations that took place at that moment were in a, were what gave rise to this so-called Second United Front. Well, Song Qingling played a key role in enacting those mm. negotiations between Stalin, right, uh, the Guomindang Party, and the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and so we have to ask in these moments: Well, if Song Qingling had not been there, yeah, what? How might these events taken place or not taken place? And and for me, this is this is an important piece, right? And so when I look to, you know, after Japan um, really mass invades China in night beginning in late 1937 uh, into 1938. You know, we, we need to ask, well, if these women's organizations had not been there, would the Second United Front have been as strong as it was? Yeah. And so, you know, we have people like Song Qingling playing a role, though she was kind of in and out um, during uh, this period. But we have also Deng Yingchao, who was working with her husband, Zhou Enlai, and with the Guomindang. And we have people like... Um, uh, we have people who were 
um, who would go on to play key roles in the formation of um, key institutions um, that would lead again to, um, I would argue, the pu- public health system of the early 1950s. Yeah. And, and those people included uh, Li Dezhuan, mm. who became um, minister, uh, the first minister of health, and who was married to a man known as the Christian warlord, um, who was closely affiliated with the Guomindong, but had strong leftist sympathies, as mm. did his wife. And so we, with these relationships mm-hmm. crossing parties, yeah. um, you see um, also a capacity, um, at least what took place was a capacity building that would not have taken place without those relationships. Sure. Absolutely. And I think we see this. Um, so, you know, you're, you're describing the, the elite level yes. in a way, yes. but I think it's very, and you mentioned it in the book many times too, what happens in the countryside, yeah. right? And how these familial ties and relations and, um, you know, affiliations most of the time would lead to different instantiations of institutions or yes. groups or, yeah. you know, um, helping with uh, public health in many ways. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. Um, it would it would prove key um, in, in the countryside as well. Yeah. And, you know, we um, as, as we uh, progress through the chapters, right, the uh, chapter three, the long march to Yan'an uh, gives us more details about the rise of the woman warrior. Mm-hmm. Right. As you, you were mentioning earlier mm-hmm. and the loyal soldier, uh, which are, you know, states of activism and positions that, um, quote, in the context of the CCP's uh, revolutionary struggle and mm-hmm. quote, right, would take um, would take lead. So I was curious to ask about some examples here and about the importance of the stories related to the Maoist uh, revolutionary struggle. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so, you know, mm-hmm. so I, I think uh, I, before I, I, I jump into uh, talking about the revolutionary struggle, I'll just note that what I've been discussing just now, and mm-hmm. that is these maternalist formations, right. uh, I would argue um, that that state of activism uh, is best encapsulated by this notion of the social reformer. Mm, right. Uh, when I talk about women like Li Chuan, for example, um, the kinds of her driving goals and ambitions were, were really focused on how do we create a new world um, uh, of public health, uh, of, of midwifery reform, of, of changes throughout China in which women could birth safely and their newborns could survive um, into infancy and beyond, right? And, and so, th- so that was an articulation that was really important, that was premised in and connected to a geopolitical notion of uh, expanding public health uh, uh, in, in different parts of the world at that moment in time, mm-hmm. and often being led, uh, if not led, with the important participation of elite women, Yes. Um, and, and highly educated women as well. So when we shift to um, chapter three, mm-hmm. uh, we're really talking here about um, as the Chinese Communist Party um, moved out of urban areas, and this was in the late 1920s, uh, they had undergone a major attack by the Guomindong Party and, um, and much of their urban network was destroyed. They retreated to the countryside, and after a period in the early 1930s, 
undertook what was um, what became known as the Long March, which was a um, uh, over a year journey um, that that was originally undertaken by tens of thousands of mostly soldiers, mm-hmm. um, though it it became much smaller as it proceeded, broke off in a few places into different formations. Um, but the stories about the Long March became really central to the Chinese Communist Party's articulation of its importance um, in in China and um, and its capacity, almost supernatural capacity, to face and overcome mm-hmm. the worst of odds, whether it be ra- raging rivers or uh, grasslands where you could be, you know, fall into mud and disappear, or whether it was stray bullets from snipers from the Guomindong or the Japanese, you know, like these, yeah. these were, there, there were these kinds of, um, it, it, it involved a kind of heroism. And uh, the, the Long March itself, uh, and there's been some very good work that's been done on it, you know, looking at uh, the role that women played on the Long March. And, it, you know, it should be noted there were very, very few women. And in fact, women were all but banned hmm. from participating in the Long March because the male senior leadership of the party uh, thought that women would be a drag on the capacity to move and mm. move quickly. And if women became pregnant, for example, mm. uh, that would slow them down um, yeah. and potentially expose them mm. um, to the Guomindong in particular. So only in in many cases, only the um, senior uh, women who were married mm. to male leaders were allowed to uh, accompany or participate in the Long March. Um, And in fact, Mao Zedong's wife, Mao Zedong, of course, becoming Chairman Mao, um, and it was during this period that he really began to ascend into becoming Mm -hmm. the most powerful figure in the Chinese Communist Party. His own wife at that time gave birth while they were on the Long March, and she was in a sense, forced to abandon her newborn in uh, an abandoned hut. So, um, you know, the the trials and tribulations of that moment also came to figure in representations of women. And I talk about two different states of of activism emerging at at that time. One, this notion of the woman warrior, which, um, which harkened back to tales that predated uh, certainly uh, New China um, since the establishment of 1912, uh, stories of heroism uh, of women who left their homes to fight in wars, sometimes replacing a a father or an elder brother. And, you know, uh, English speakers might be most familiar with the Disney uh, version of Mulan, right? Whether the most recent one on... on, um, with actors or the, yeah. you know, the, the former one that was done in, in cartoons. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Mulan was one of the figures that was then taken up as a kind of role model and refigured in terms of these revolutionary stories. There were other stories of, of hero, heroic women as well, um, both from uh, the past mm-hmm. that were reincorporated, as well as women on the Long March who uh, undertook heroic feats. And I, I wanted to distinguish, though, between the woman warrior and 
uh, and loyal soldiers. Mm -hmm. And again, keeping in mind that there were times when one woman might, you know, might be sort of oscillating between two states of activism, you know, what is most important to her at a particular moment. But the woman warrior uh, for me was interesting because uh, these were women who, in a sense, sought to become uh, soldiers, warriors, if you will, um, modeled on a kind of male ideal of struggle, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, who often wanted to forsake family mm. in order to give, you know, giving up family right. for the re- revolutionary struggle, um, but who also, uh, at the same time, sought to extend uh, care to women and children. Hmm. So kept if you will, women and children still as an important part of the revolutionary struggle, um, including maternity, okay? Interesting. And the the female form uh, as they understood it, even as they sought to enact really a male understanding of heroism Mm -hmm. um, as it was being um, as it was being enacted in the Chinese Communist Party, um, this vastly male-dominated organization. Um, so there was there was the woman warrior, um, and and I show how that was the case um, for one senior leader by the name of Kang Keqing, also married to a senior male official, married to an important general, Judah. Kang Keqing um, essentially was pulled kicking and screaming out of the army. She did not want to leave the army. She This would have been her lifelong mission was to serve in the army, but was basically told by other senior women leaders that no, she had to um, be involved in and undertake women work. Hmm. And she eventually did um, and would become an important figure in that work, though her uh, longing for the army, uh, for military life, uh, as is very evident in her memoir, never subsided. And um, and so in a sense, there was sort of this conflictual dimension to her own agency and that she was thwarted from really pursuing uh, the leadership that she, she, she would have loved to have become a general um, oh. herself, right? Um, yeah. She didn't want to be taking care of women and children, but she did. But she did was able to make it a priority. That's in contrast to other women, including women I interviewed, mm-hmm. um, including um, uh, representations I saw in archival materials, mm-hmm. whereby um, women activists, uh, some women activists in villages, uh, at the grassroots, even at higher levels. Um, really understood their primary loyalty as being to the Chinese Communist Party, Mm. Um, that women and children really had very little to do with their work. Um, Class struggle Mm. was paramount and and that there was a strong attachment often to Mao Zedong in, in the loyal soldier, whether it was village leaders who really aspired to embody Mao's words and, and, and find ways to live out that revolutionary life mm-hmm. um, or whether it was, um, you know, uh, for those close to him. And in particular, there's, there's one senior leader, Tsai Chang, 
I was thinking of her, yeah. Tsai Chuang, who um, was the, the most senior woman leader in the Chinese Communist Party, had a very close relationship. And I, I, I talk about it as a fraternal sororal relationship. Yeah. And she was akin to like a younger sister to Mao. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that relationship of elder brother and younger sister is important here um, because he he was somebody that she looked up to in that um, kind of filial sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and she saw him really as uh, a living embodiment of the revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on top of that, in addition to that, had that close familial tie to him. And so her work, I argue, uh, in the Chinese Communist Party and even in the Women's Federation mm-hmm. was all about serving Mao as Mao saw the revolution should be undertaken and putting women, including the women's federation, you mentioned the all China democratic women's federation, um, which was officially founded in 1949 at the service of Mao's vision of how revolution should be undertaken. And when I use the word revolution here, I don't just mean revolution, that gave rise to the establishment of the People's Republic of China, but the ongoing revolution in land reform and other kinds of social revolution, if you will, mm-hmm. that would continue into the 1950s. And I think we can add to that the revolution of the self. Absolutely. Thank you for raising that. Oh. Um, I think this is such an important piece. Mm-hmm. And, and again, why as... As a political scientist, I was really trying to grapple with more sociological ways of understanding agency mm-hmm. and, and how people see themselves as agents. And so in the context of land reform, which I talk about in chapter four, and I think you're yeah. going to ask me about <laughs> exactly. next, yeah. right? Yeah. We see um, uh, struggle meetings, right, yes. where landlords uh, or, or what individuals who were who were viewed as having um, been able to prosper under the previous regime, yep. um, in some cases with large uh, homes and large families, and they would hire people to work for them, um, they would have servants, uh, but it, it very much depended on the classification. And so you have to be really careful when you talk about landlords, because sometimes they were these individuals Again, large families, large land holdings, and sometimes they were, you know, small families with a couple of acres of land, but were viewed by the Chinese Communist Party as suspect because they actually hired people um, during the harvest season, right? Mm. So, so that differentiation is is important to keep in mind because this was a very subjective: who was being labeled a landlord and how the classification of class was actually being undertaken as the Chinese Communist Party was coming into villages and trying to identify, okay, um, what class are you? What class are you? And, and essentially labeling people accordingly. At these, that caveat aside, you know, at these struggle ses- sessions, which took place for the most part in the 19, 1949, 19, in some places beginning in 48, 49, 19, early 1950s, um, these were events that were sometimes attended by as many as 10,000 people. There'd be a stage set up um, and individuals would get up on stage and they would talk 
many cases shout about their experiences having been oppressed by the landlord. Mm-hmm. Now, this was particularly something for the young women who were recruited often into what was called the Peasant Association at that time, and often, I would argue, by fathers or brothers who were also in the Peasant Association. Because at that time, for a a young woman, and it was often young women who were being recruited to, um, in a sense, speak publicly with a man who was outside of her family, let alone a whole public audience, would have been considered something extremely shameful. Mm. So for her to get up on stage and to participate in this was really turning the world upside down. Absolutely. And and so when we talk about practices, mm-hmm. um, this this very act of what became known as speaking bitterness, right, um, was hugely important in shaping the um, the ways in which these activists saw the world and the ways in some cases, which their audience was beginning to see the world anew. And a big part of it was trying to demonstrate to the audience that the old world had ended and the new world had become, and that the landlord would no way, no form come back to oppress them again. Mm -hmm. And for people to believe that, that was extremely difficult because in some cases, in some of the um, villages where I was doing research, the Chinese Communist Party had arrived in 1947 and then had retreated. Mm, I see. So then, with was, the with the yeah. battles that were taking place with the Guomindang, but they had started to do the work of class struggle <laughs> right. and land reform, yeah. and then they retreated it. And then there were all these people vulnerable um, yeah. to the wrath of the Guomindang. So, um, so this was a very um, powerful moment. It's part of the reason why. A number of landlords were publicly executed, especially some of the larger, more influential um, landlords were publicly executed. And the ones who weren't were uh, regularly struggled against, humiliated, and were eventually um, allocated you know, very small bits of land. And their families themselves would suffer for decades um, as a consequence of that. But that participation in struggle, that learning a new vocabulary, right? The learning to think of oneself as a peasant, right? Yeah. (laughs) Was a very, very powerful uh, form of of political uh, formation and and needs to be taken extremely seriously in how we understand the gender dynamics that unfolded, the, the, the kinds of gender politics that unfolded at that time. For sure, for sure. And, you know, I think that as as you said, like connects with chapter four uh, that talks about land reform, yeah. and um, you know the effective dimension of the land reform, mm-hmm. and right the women negotiated the reform and the effective aspect of it in different ways while learning this vocabulary yeah. while you know um, kind of being present and yeah. speaking up for different right um, uh, goals. Yeah. Though I would argue that in these earliest days, um, and you know the the marriage law, which we'll talk about in a minute. I mean, that was introduced in 1950. Um, the land reform really came first, and uh, and and so although women were being taught that they're women, 
mm-hmm. and that they were liberated as women. Sure. Um, it was really this notion of being liberated as peasants that was most powerful um, in the minds of the women who became activists, or many of, not all. Some also were were deeply shaped by that that by the women work that that took place as well. Um, but but that belief in oneself, that pride in being a peasant, um, while at the same time, you know, with the affective dimensions, always having to be on guard and protecting one's reputation um, because there was always danger of being seen as sexually suspect as one engaged in local activism, Mm -hmm. Um, even with the protection of a husband or a father who was also politically active, Mm -hmm. it still took tremendous courage and ongoing fear um, as well as worry because although they sought to see that many sought to, you know, saw themselves as peasants, they often were still being required to take care of their families at the same time. So they were, you know, playing these double, often triple roles, uh, working in the fields, uh, convening meetings, and then taking care of their families. That is extraordinary work to do by anyone. Um, But, you know, as you're talking, I'm just thinking here, you know, like that's so difficult in terms of identity formation. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And, and again, it's, it's, it's why when I first went in and started interviewing uh, my, my, I went in thinking, okay, well, in places where there were sort of large clans um, in which that sort of this notion of a patriarchal clan family ties, my expectation was um, they would be preventing women from participating. But if those clans, if, if those members, male members Mm -hmm. were signing up with the Chinese communist party, were getting involved in the peasant association um, in many cases, or at least in some cases, they were bringing women with along with mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And so I guess in the research, about half of the women in rural areas that I interviewed mm-hmm. had male family members um, active in politics before them, mm-hmm. playing some form of role in bringing them into this work. Right. right. And so... Um, it was a really key piece and 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 really made me reframe and rethink this idea that women were necessarily out there fighting patriarchy <laughs> as their first step right right yeah. as as and the other piece to remember that's so important is most of these young uh, women um, most were were illiterate they had little to no schooling right Right. And so, again, to contrast with the social remor- reformer yeah. or to contrast with the new woman, yeah. right, as these uh, articulations of identity and political consciousness and practices and clothing, if you're illiterate and you're coming into your political consciousness mm-hmm. um, through, through land reform um, and you're having to memorize speeches... Exactly. Yes. It's a completely different yes. form of political formation. Absolutely. Completely different understanding of what you're there to do. For sure. For sure. And it's fascinating. You know, it's it's really 
and I mean, I think there, there's still, um, I mean, there, there must be a lot of archival material, right? On- yes, there is. Though access right now is, is particularly yeah. at the row level. I don't know um, how much capacity scholars are going to have right now to get access into archives. There's a lot of, um, again, as, as we were talking before the start of the interview, it's become yeah. much more difficult. For sure, for sure, and I think also the I mean there the structural difficulties, but there's also the material difficulties, yeah. <laughs> right? Of 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 these materials that I mean you know I was looking at things from the 1980s and yeah. it was, you know, hard and the vocabulary was different and everything. Yeah. So um, I can only imagine the 50s, beginning of the 50s, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, just talking about you know struggles um, for about chapter. Five, yeah. right maternal bodies um you know i i was very intrigued by this idea of women's roles in manufacturing construct and constructing the state's capacity and infrastructure to quote simultaneously wage war reduce malnutrition very important minimize disease and extract resources end of quote all of that at the same time. And, you know, I wanted to invite you to tell us more about the women's pivotal role, especially when it came to minimization of diseases mm-hmm. and malnutrition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the most amazing um, and I think underappreciated dimensions of early state building in the PRC was its capacity to roll out a highly effective public health campaign yeah. to improve midwifery. Um, and, and that took place, I've mentioned Lee Dutuan, who yeah. was the, the Minister of Health. Um, and, it, you know, talked about her ties, her family ties, um, that, that, that the close relationship she'd had with Deng Ying Chao, who um, became a vice chair of the All China Women's Federation, and also with Zhou Enlai, the premier of the country. Um, So I I think the first thing I want to say is that the new government under the PRC identified uh, midwifery reform as a top priority. And the decision to make Li Dechuan the Minister of Health was part of that decision. Like, Mm -hmm. so was was a direct extension of that decision. Um, And along with that, both Zhou Enlai and Mao Zedong facilitated the um, the building of the capacity that t- to, in a sense, build upon what the previous work that had been done on, under the previous regime by, through Li Dechuan, extending invitations to um, one of the, or the most famous OBGYN um, who had been working outside of China when the Chinese Communist Party came to power. Mm-hmm. So they actually through Li Dechuan, mm-hmm. extended an invitation for her to come back and oversee, you know, help build this midwifery reform movement. Amazing. Li Dechuan, um, I think, is interesting because uh, her, her husband had died in an accident just prior to the foundation of the People's Republic. She, like Song Qingling, was a widow. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a widow, was served as a kind of symbolic extension of her husband, Mm -hmm. who was a bridge between the two parties, Mm -hmm. if you will. I see. And she herself was an extremely well-known figure or social figure um, during the 1930s and 40s. She was also, though she herself was not a physician, 
um, she had worked closely with experiments in midwifery reform, mm-hmm. experiments and, and foot binding, women's ed- education, uh, and close ties to both the women's Young Women's Christian Association and the WCTU, the Women's Christian Temperance Union as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so she came with this sort of tremendous background of experience but also network. Mm-hmm. And the network, um, you know, we haven't talked about the Chongqing Coalition in, in sort of what was the Chongqing Coalition, yes. <laughs> but the Chongqing Coalition, in effect, was this network mm-hmm. um, that began during the, um, during the war with Japan, mm-hmm. um, during that moment of crisis when Japan had invaded. Yeah. And, and during that second United Front, when women came across party lines and worked together to provide relief and aid and built infrastructure during that process, right? So Li Dechuen played a played a pivotal role in that work, including working alongside uh, Chiang Kai-shek's wife, um, who was Song Qingling's sister, Song Meiling. Mm-hmm. So fast forward to 1949-1950, when Li Dechuen takes this new position as Minister of Health. Now, she's long been dismissed. Oh. Yes, right. Long been dismissed is nothing more than a symbolic figurehead. Right. And I would agree she was a symbolic figurehead. But behind the scenes, Mm -hmm. she was also involved, um, if not responsible, Mm -hmm. for bridging the work of the Ministry of Health and the All China Women's Federation Mm -hmm to realize a, um, a new program of public health, which retrained midwives on the ground um, and, re- and trained new um, women leaders and activists hmm. as they were recruiting them um, into the party, but also into women work right. in the countryside. Right. Um, the training was very minimal. Um, it uh, didn't always mean that these particular activists and leaders were birthing babies themselves. I spoke to a few of them who, for example, would deliver the the the, the infants of, of family members. Mm-hmm. Um, but some would go on to train and retrain other um, midwives in their um, in their areas. And you know, one of the most remarkable interventions here, one of the most effective interventions was to ensure that um, that the tools being used to cut the umbilical cord mm-hmm. was sanitized. Huge deal. Um, because uh, some 50% of infants, uh, including in some of the areas where I was studying, mm-hmm. some 50% had been dying shortly after childbirth. And a major contributing factor was neonatal tetanus right. from rusty implements. Yep. So that simple practice alone was able to, um, to the extent that it extended, mm-hmm. was able to ensure that that newborns were surviving um, beyond the first week or so of after birth. Um, midwives were able to introduce other um, practices as well to improve. Um, birthing care. And then over the course of the decade, um, more clinics came online at the local level. Um, But in a sense, in many ways, uh, these midwives, these grassroots midwives, I would argue, 
were the the early um, what became known as the barefoot doctors during right. the Cultural Revolution, right? right. Where you have these um, uh, grassroots uh, physicians who had received very little training, but were mm-hmm. there to, yeah. in a sense, um, provide basic healthcare and first aid care. Um, what we know is that um, that infant mortality declined. Um, dr- I mean, dropped by half, mm-hmm. um, right? Uh, very, very quickly. And you know, as some of the senior, um, uh, what, what would you call them, the foot demographers, you know, have have shown, you know, this wasn't just as a result of of these programs, right? Sure. We have the cessation of war. People are able to work their fields again. Like there's a whole capacity yeah. to rebuild, sure. and in that way, um, you know. M- malnutrition is being addressed as well. However, um, you know, you asked about, so, so that the infant mortality was, um, was directly uh, addressed. And, and again, I think has been very under-recognized in terms of the state's capacity to ameliorate um, what was a crisis, right? For, for women across um, China, who were birthing in conditions in which they were losing, um, you know, half of the infants to which they were giving birth. Um, malnutrition uh, was harder, yeah, and did not see the same um, kind of impact um, that we saw in terms of the birthing um, practices. And uh, and this work, I think, you know, we have to one of the major impediments to malnutrition. I mean, again, when through land reform, individuals were allocated land. Um, they Many began working as families um, to cultivate their land. And, and in that way, people were in some places beginning to, uh, to be able to feed themselves and their families uh, in a more sustainable way than they had been previously. But the caloric consumption doesn't actually increase that much, and and what we see, that and that would I would argue is largely as a consequence. And this is um, my colleague uh, Felix Felix Venter has argued, you know, is largely an outcome of the the decision by the Chinese Communist Party to extract grain from the countryside yeah. in order to feed urban workers. Right. And so, in a sense, the Chongqing coalition could address mm-hmm. um, the, the emergency of, of the high death rate among, um, among infants, but it couldn't address yeah. in the same way sure. because they didn't have control over um, the food system. Sure. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think it's, it's, m- more complicated in a way not that you know minimization of diseases at birth and all of that is not complicated but with malnutrition it just it, it provokes so many other implications in, yeah. in the health realm yeah and specifically for for infants and for children and yeah. you know if there are complications at birth for mothers yeah. and then it's such you know on top of the infrastructure and everything yeah. that it's so hard to address it. and and i think your point yeah. is a really important one because um, during the Great Leap Forward mm-hmm. and the famine, 
right. which began when when you know not just malnutrition but 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 people were starving yeah. when that was taking place you know i've seen in the materials and in you know including the in the all china um women's federation uh its primary journal you know this emphasis on on disease control mm-hmm. <laughs> i see right yeah when people are yeah. starving yeah no, you know no actually the diseases yeah are flowing in no small part because people don't have anything to eat yeah exactly. they're dying because they're hungry yeah. not because of other particular diseases i mean it's not that diseases weren't present but but it was a way of um it was a way of diverting attention absolutely um, yeah and i think we can see it a little, maybe a little bit in the um uh, with the barefoot doctors, right, and with the schistosomiasis mm-hmm, epidemics, mm-hmm. I think there's also this malnutrition yes. food uh, management. Yes, yeah, and food management is a good way to put it because, um, and it's and it's then moves directly into, you know, the household manager chapter yeah. in which I I do talk about how the the All China Women's Federation uh, under Tsai Chong in particular really emphasizes the role that women have to play in managing the food supply and um, and and in a sense setting up um, a, discert, a discursive system so that if your family was hungry, it was because the person who was responsible for the family budget, which was often women who mm-hmm. were, you know, allocating and controlling the grain supply, um, were, were poor managers. And this was something that that I saw articulated or I heard articulated mm-hmm. um, by, you know, at least several women leaders that I, that I had interviewed about that period in time. And, and so that food management issue becomes huge. And again, you know, comes back to the beginning of our conversation when we're talking about state and state formation, yeah. the state's capacity to extract grain from the countryside to feed workers in urban areas was dependent upon um, not only their ability to, you know, to pull out grain, but also on the the ability to prevent, in a sense, folks in the countryside from saying, hey, we don't have enough. Yeah. Right. And, and so we can see how the management there's a gendered management that's taking place um, and, and which, you know, wasn't always successful. You know, women were also telling me in joking ways about, mm-hmm. about this system and, 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 or sort of making, you know, cutting remarks about, about the system of food management um, sure. and, you know, using humor through sarcasm, right. Um, because they saw through it. Sure. Um, Sure. Because they saw through it, though not all of the leaders did, you know. And again, and that's why I'm so adamant that we need to understand mm-hmm. sure. the agency of, of of local women leaders, how they understood it, and were trying to enact it, For because sure. they really believed in that mission. For sure, I mean the hardship was was so strong that you had to believe. For you know some people, right? You yes. had to believe in it. Um, and, you know, as, as we're thinking about it, I don't know why, I just remember there's, um, so there's, um, you know, this novel, The Chronicles of a Blood Merchant. Mm-hmm. And then there's this 
particular moment. So it's it's going through the famine. You know, there's a famine happening. Yeah. So of course, it's it's in the novel. It's fictional, right? Mm -hmm. But there is this moment where the woman of the, in the family, right, like they know the famine is coming, and then the uh, the woman decides to just okay, everybody, we go into the forest, we forage whatever we can, and there's gonna be a full year or you know mm -hmm. something like that of no nothing else. So there's just a little bit of rice and her. Um, her duty, right, to the family is to actually apportion that rice for a year with whatever they, they found in the forest. And it's a very interesting kind of way of in which the mother of the family is portrayed to uh, take care of. As responsible. Yes. As responsible. And it's the responsabilization yes. that I was really interested in looking at. You know, whether it was always effective as a form of propaganda or not, you know, we can argue about sure, that. Sure. But the articulation of it and the enactment at the mm -hmm. local level by local leaders yeah. was powerful to a certain degree. Right. Sure. And yeah. and I think we really need to take it seriously okay. um, as part of what contributed to this moment taking place. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that kind of gets us into chapter six, filial brides with the implementation of the marriage law mm. and uh, uh, women leaders implication in divorce suppression. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's kind of going back to uh, the Chongqing coalition and yeah. to some of the elite politics behind the marriage law. Yeah. But then, you know, I, I was curious about the dynamic between different women actors and the state and its different iterations. Yes. And, you know, how the law was meant to be. But then, you know, divorce suppression was happening. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. 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 And again, I, I, I really, again, I'm trying to take a very sociological approach mm -hmm. um, to, to this history and, and to the dynamics of policy formation and implementation in mm -hmm. the context of the marriage law and to take very seriously the conflict that yeah. took place at every single point of um, the deliberation, the enactment, and the implementation of this law, and not just between women and men and village patriarchs, who yeah. you know often seen as sort of the villains in the story, preventing the implementation of the marriage law, but really understanding the widespread conflict over the law. Mm -hmm. um, and so just a couple of points, you know, I would first of all say, I'm going to mentioned Deng Yingchao again, vice chair of the All China uh, Democratic Women's Federation, married to the premier, a longtime senior party leader. The thing that she, I'll talk about elite first, and then I'll talk about grassroots. Mm -hmm. The thing that she was able to do, um, in addition to, uh, she would play a key role in land reform as well, and ensuring that women could, could um, be allocated their own land. Right. So she played it, made a key intervention there as well yeah. um, and was very political and very strategic, I should say, about mm -hmm. how she realized that um, that commitment by the party. Um, she was also very strategic with the marriage law. And um, I've already mentioned how, you know, her her belief in the law really extended back to the May 4th era, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, she'd worked on marriage reform under the Guomindong as well. So, I mean, this had been long sort of on her, her docket. Um, but the thing that she was able to do that was, was quite remarkable was um, she was pretty much, and from what I can tell from the material that I've read, and I really, I read everything I could get my hands mm -hmm. on with respect to the passage. And I, you know, again, 
who knows what we'll find in coming years in terms I of mean. new new insight. But but what I have understood by reading a number of different accounts and 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 documents is that Deng Yingchao was pretty much single-handedly able to ensure one-party petition divorce. Mm-hmm. And what that meant is that women didn't need to secure their husband's permission in mm-hmm. order to dissolve a marriage. And, um, and so that was a really progressive sure. um, dimension of the law. And again, it would not have happened, I would argue, without sure. Deng Yingchao's advocacy mm-hmm. and without the fact, um, you know, with the, without the fact that she was part of a, um, a party family network, in particular in relationship with her husband, but also with the Chongqing coalition, um, uh, the, the minister, the woman who became minister of justice in 1953 had been very active as well in the, in the Chongqing coalition and, and um, was a very, very famous lawyer. So she had people, mm-hmm. Song Qingling as well, who were, <coughs> who were behind her on this work, but who, um, but there were, but there, but it was Deng Yingchao really who was the only one who could get this through. Right. And, um, and I say that because even in the Women's Federation itself, there were many women who were opposed to the passage of this law hmm. because they were threatened um, by the fact that um, there were enough Women's Federation leaders whose husbands, as they were returning to the city and establishing their new urban lives, um, were exiting their own mess marriages and mm. wanting to dissolve their own messages that these women were deeply concerned about protecting their own marriages. Right. And they were worried that their husbands could simply divorce them and marry a younger woman, which was happening actually with great frequency at that time. Right. So opposition there, opposition from the army, opposition from male um, party cadres, op- opposition at the grassroots. Like it was everywhere, you know, again, with the exception of the Chongqing coalition mm-hmm. and Zhou Enlai mm. and the um, uh, Liu Xiaoqi, also a senior leader. Mm. Mao Zedong probably could have been swayed. Right. But Liu Xiaoqi and Zhou Enlai were really key um, as well. So she got this through, which was really remarkable. First law passed by the People's Republic of China uh, ensured one-party petition divorce. There's many things we could talk about with the marriage law. Um, It rolled out in uh, many places in um, uh, 1950, uh, but the biggest mobilization didn't take place until 1953. Mm-hmm. So um, there was sort of this back and forth with mm-hmm. land reform, yeah. and um, and uh, it was uh, priorities of land reform. Yeah, land reform was prioritized before the marriage law. Nonetheless, there were many folks in the countryside, women uh, activist leaders who I interviewed, who you know were talking about those early days, the excitement the bafflement of how to handle situations, yeah. say if a woman was being um, physically assaulted by her husband, how to deal with these situations. I mean, it was it was like getting a law handed to you, but then what do you do with it, yeah. right? Yeah. And you might believe in the need to um, 
sort of provide women with this security to be able to leave a violent marriage or you were a child bride. So married as a young, um, a a young child into a family and eventually married to the son of the household. Um, You know, you might fervently believe in this, but how do you bring it about? Right. It's just, you know, as, as one woman said, you know, we, you know, I, I threw one husband into jail, right? Because I, for three days, let him out. And then the woman didn't want to proceed further with any, right? Understandably, right? Sure, there was sure. no infrastructure in yep. place, right? Exactly. And, you know, as many, many documents from the period show, there was extreme violence against women yeah. who sought to try and leave marriages. There were many women who committed suicide. Um, it was an extremely um, challenging um law as it as it was being implemented in the countryside even though the mass implementation didn't take place um, really until 1953 so so that's the first thing to keep in mind but then in 1953 when permission was given to do a mobilization it was effectively took place over the spring um, the focus really came to be only women who had been married effectively against their will Mm -hmm. and as children prior to 1949. It was not for women who wanted to leave their marriages, their less than ideal spouse, as as Dunging Chow put it, in order to pursue a love. Right, right. It was no longer for those women. And here's where things got really interesting um, in my mind, because... You know, the marriage law, again, has been subject to much research and study uh, for decades now, right? What are we, 2023? So for for 73 years now, yeah. right? I, I mean, as occupied, as you, you know, lots of folks have written on, on, or enough folks have written on the marriage law, maybe. Yeah. No, did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair amount's been written. Yeah. But to me, one of the really interesting pieces is why... After 1953, 1954, do we see divorce rates drop so dramatically? Mm -hmm. The only real explanation that I've seen in the literature is that's because, and this would have been an argument made by the Chinese Communist Party itself, Mm -hmm. because um, all the child brides Mm -hmm. had effectively been able to divorce their husbands. Hmm. Interesting. Which to me is laughable in it's it's there is no way no how and uh, you know and I interviewed how many young or how many former activists who themselves have been child brides who Mm -hmm. did not end up divorcing like there's I mean yeah no you cannot tell me that's that's what happened right without even going to talk about women for example you know you're talking about norms at that time where it was completely acceptable for in 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 conjugal relationships for men to be beating women yeah right yeah. and and physically assaulting with yeah. women um, yeah. not to mention in-laws oh, beating yes. daughters-in-law right yes. so domestic violence was rife mm-hmm. um so for for those divorces to drop so dramatically as they did to almost nothing right in some counties where you have hundreds of thousands of people living mm-hmm. is had to have taken place that kind of enforcement 
required, well, that kind of change required enforcement. Right. Who right. did the enforcing? My argument is that local women's heads played a major role right. in preventing women who might have otherwise pursued divorce. And again, even if it was a small number, because obstacles were so high, things were confusing. How, where do you go? Where do you stay? There's no infrastructure. Like even for women who might have had supportive natal family members who were willing to take back their daughter, mm-hmm. um, the first thing she would have encountered was the local funu juren, the women's head, the woman who was responsible for yeah. managing women work in the village, yeah. who would have been going to the woman to try to convince her not to divorce her husband. And, and that's where we see, you know, building on, on the work of others, um, uh, Kevin O'Brien and, and, and his collaborators on this concept of relational repression. Mm. You know, you see women's heads talking about how the shame that they would bring upon their family, um, how they're going to lose their children. So it's this threat that you're going to lose the people yeah. that you're that are most important to you. Not only are you divorcing your family, you're going to lose your children, you're going to bring shame on your natal family. Mm-hmm. Like these are huge. The potential for social stigma was was dramatic. Right. And so these women's heads played a really important role in um, preventing marriage dissolution. And this was very striking because when I would ask, you know, wh- you know, what is what is funu gongzuo? What did you do for funu gongzuo in mm-hmm. the 1950s and 1960s? What did this look like, or 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 just what was funu gongzuo? Talking about keeping women in marriages came up all the time, and as one woman said, you know, I must have worked on tens of thousands of families like it's an exaggeration of course but she was very proud yeah yeah yeah. very proud of keeping these relationships intact wow it's almost like you know the matchmaker but inversed yeah that's a good uh that's a good uh yeah yeah amazing yeah and so you know again the marriage law what is the what is the, um, the the consequence of it? Here we can think about it in this incredibly liberatory way. Right, absolutely. You know, including at the elite level, if you want to look at it through the framework yeah. of Deng Ying Chao and her new woman ideals, you know, and then you look at what happens at the local level and the confusion yeah. and the challenges and implementation. And then the word comes down from the Chinese Communist Party women have to stay in their marriages. And it's right. the funu juren, the women's heads that are responsible for making that happen. So when we want to talk about state capacity, mm-hmm. and in this case, this was ensuring right. that that there was not going to be any distractions from the more important work of collectivization, which right. is what started to happen in the mid-1950s. Absolutely. And I think... Um... And it, you know, it's not—it's something that just came came up in, in in my mind as I was as I was listening. Um, I think uh, to go into chapter seven as well, but you know, there's this idea if the 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 women went back to their their families right from the marriage, there was also you know the threat of famine, right? There was not enough resource, not enough food, food. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, the the implications were huge, right? Mm-hmm. It would it would be you know land allocation, you know. Before collectivization yeah. would have been would have been challenging. Um, yes, how are we going to feed an extra mouth? Right, 
um, daughters often being considered an extra mouth yeah. to feed until marriage. Yeah. Um, exactly. And uh, many women, the, the women who did divorce, because I, I did interview women who successfully divorced, mm-hmm. often quickly remarried. Right. So in that sense, they were not a long-term burden on their natal family. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that they were able to remarry uh, in some cases, they would end up marrying another local leader. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one woman in particular married a, a local leader, um, and and she had been experiencing tremendous, probably physical abuse, mm-hmm. um, in her her first marriage, and um, and she was, you know, basic. You know, she was trying to be an activist. She was trying to fulfill her responsibilities as a women's head. And and was under tremendous pressure, um, and eventually she she decided to divorce and mm-hmm. and and remarry. Um, so right. you know, and I, I should say too, in the case of um, activists and leaders, in some cases, um, it, well, it, interestingly, a number of them, in at least in this very small sample of women that I interviewed, but it was striking nonetheless. Mm-hmm. That uh, that many of them were able to marry within their natal villages, right? right. And that most at that time, most women would marry out to another village, right? So the fact that they were able to that it was that they were able to get the social support mm-hmm. to marry within the village um, was was pretty remarkable, actually. Right, right. So then there, you know, there are these familial attachments in many ways that happen in the village that are created or dissolved or rethought, mm-hmm. right? And I think, actually, that was my question for Chapter 7, Household Managers. But since we've been kind of in mm-hmm. and out of the yeah. chapter for a bit. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, um, is there anything else that we could we could add here um, about the household that changed? Yeah, so I guess I guess the thing that I would say here is, is just that... Um, you know, just to build on that that previous point that I was making mm-hmm. about extraction and extraction from the countryside. Right. One of my arguments here is that women were being positioned as household managers mm-hmm. um, in the countryside, even as they were being positioned as laborers. And so when the CCP came to collect grain, mm-hmm. right, it would collect grain um, from each household. Yeah. And women's heads in some cases were participating in this work Mm. and again it was playing that role of convincing women to do in a sense their their duty to to the country to the larger collective by giving up grain Mm. and and that kind of um that kind of ideological work that was happening was also part of women work Mm. and so the grain extraction Right. Yeah. When, when we talk about Max Weber's definition of the state, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, we need to also reread this notion of extracting and allocating resources. Yes. It's not just that, as they increasingly did, women were participating in field work and yeah. in some provinces producing the vast amount of agricultural production. Yeah. Um, but that they were also responsible for keeping thrifty households and thereby reducing what their families were eating, or at least expected to reduce what their families were eating so that the state could extract more. And I think that that's a really important piece here Mm -hmm. in terms of thinking about the state and its ability to grow on the basis of 
family management. So it's not just the nation. You know, we've often thought about family management vis-a-vis nation, yep. the building of the nation. Yep. But I really want to emphasize this notion of the state and um, and how it was directly contributing to state formation at this time as well. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's, yeah, it's so plurivalent. Um, Thank you for that word. I appreciate that word. That's the word I'm looking for, plurivalent. <laughs> multiplicity. I could have used plurivalent in the book. I think I used multiplicity way too much. I'm happy to. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think we can use that word mm-hmm. for chapter eight, mm-hmm. um, shock troops, yeah. uh, the title. And, um, you know, we kind of uh, get into this uh, conflictual context to yeah. a certain extent. And, you know, the, the Great Leap Forward represents the main political umbrella term that kind of oversees all of these things happening. But I'm curious about the attachments that undergirded, like what happened to families yeah. and, ter- and also like the, the conflict. Itself. Yeah, and the conflict over the family. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, j- just for back background and context uh, for your listeners, you know, yeah. I think it's important to understand that over the course of the 1950s, Mao Zedong was pushing for the collectivization of the countryside. Yeah. And um, and then after some back and forth, without getting into all the history, in 1958. Um, largely as a consequence of Mao's um, zeal and idealism, uh, the Chinese Communist Party uh, pushed forward into a new movement Mm -hmm. to communize the country, but in particular, the countryside. And so that meant what had been smaller collectives, um, so people in the sense it had been required increasingly to give up the land that they've been allocated through land reform to participate in small collectives, then larger collectives, and then now in this new large commune structures. And um, and under those commune structures, which were in essentially, in a sense, thrown up overnight, starting in the summer of 1958 mm. um, into the early fall of, so within a matter of two to three months, Suddenly, communes, everybody's living under communes. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that people are working on work teams. Um, They're no longer collectives that are within the village, but they're part of teams that can be mobilized to work in another part of the county um, to to harvest grain or bring in, you know, to plant, um, to work on steel construction, which was happening at work sites, often in sort of, at least in one of the counties I was working in, in the more mountainous region, work on collective projects to build um, new irrigation, um, uh, new forms of irrigation and digging large ditches. Um, So suddenly people can be mobilized like soldiers at overnight and irrespective of anything else that might be going on within a family. So for example, um, and importantly, the communes included dining halls, Mm -hmm. In yep. all villages, yep. again, that were erected overnight, and child cares or daycares, right, where children could go during the day. Some were overnight daycares, hmm. but that was more often in um, urban areas. Um, there was much fewer in, in rural areas. Um, the fact that these were thrown up overnight um, with little preparation and little instruction, um, as you might imagine, um, 
was extremely challenging. Sure. Um, however, many people, both in the upper echelons of the Chinese Communist Party and at the grassroots, um, it, it must be noted, were swept up with the idealism of the moment because the promise was we work hard right. for several years and then we are going to live um, yeah. in, in a land of plenty, sure. right? So this this was the promise. We work hard for a few years and then it's the promised land after that. So there was this incredibly, it was a utopic moment, right? And yeah. it was a moment of wonder. And for young women in particular, as I write about at the grassroots, yeah. um, including in, because some of these sort of projects also began a little bit earlier before the Great Leap Forward, but it was, this was an opportunity to travel, to go to parts of the county or even to another county or another part of the province that they hadn't been before, or even to extend to another part of China altogether. Yeah. Um, though that one could argue was part of the the nation building as well, because right. they were in some cases going west. Um, oh, right. Um, so to Qinghai, mm-hmm. uh, um, yeah. the steps. Um, at any rate, um, this opportunity to travel to be out from under the um, the pressures of the village yeah. of your natal family or maybe of your marital family. Yeah. Um, and, and again, this was particularly for young women who had, had not yet started to have children. Right. right? right. So this sense of freedom and fun and singing songs yeah. together. Right. Like, so I really want to those first few months, I want to really emphasize that it was an escape. Right. In part from the restrictions of this so- socialist household as it had been reestablished right. under the PRC, this socialist household that had been sort of built over mm-hmm. pre-existing structures or built into pre-existing structures. So this capacity to escape. Women with children. Mm, that's a different category. It's a different story. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And um, and and the, the these, in a sense, forced mobilizations um, were heartbreaking, um, were extremely challenging that women who were um, breastfeeding um, weren't supposed to be sent far away. They needed to be able to come back and um, continue to, to nurse if they were nursing a child. Uh, one woman talked about her father carrying the baby to her into the fields mm. where she nursed the baby and then the father would. And, but again, this was an activist. This was a, a place, this was in a situation where the woman had mar- married within her natal village, right. right? And so those natal family ties remain strong. Right. Um, and it's an interesting example of uh, of a breaking up of what we would think of as quote unquote traditional household practices, right? right. Um, nonetheless, for many women with young children, this was an extremely challenging moment. Um, and you know, within the women's federation itself, um, it it was trying to understand what was being asked and how to do it and whether they in fact wanted to participate fully in what was being asked because yeah we're all in for socializing housework for having dining halls for having um daycare set up and you know one of the things i really want to 
emphasize is that if we look at urban China mm-hmm. in the decades following up yep. until the 80s when, you know, the iron rice bowl was dismantled, yep. um, you know, you have many places where dining halls and, and child cares were extremely common. And so, but what they had was infrastructure. Yeah. They had folks who had some education and training who could, um, who could, you know, provide the capacity yeah. for that new infrastructure that was completely missing in these villages. And so what was taking place was um, disastrous mm-hmm. for many families. And Tsai Chang, mm-hmm. again, sis, younger sister to what I call younger sister in the struggle to Mao Zedong, mm-hmm. um, she was, um, according to what I've been told and what I've read, um, extremely distressed mm-hmm. when she saw that, for example, in some places, husbands and wives were being separated into barracks, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That in effect, the family was being um, completely eradicated. Right. And and this was, um, this was in fact what some of the party leaders were talking about, including Liu Xiaoqi, you know, the one who had been supporting the midwifery reform yeah. just yeah. 10 years earlier. This idea that somehow the family could be dissolved overnight and that these new socialist structures could replace um, or somehow stand in with again, without any preparation, right. um, was, was something that he seemed to have been caught up with at that moment in time. And what becomes really interesting is how we see a kind of impromptu, if you will, coalition emerge mm-hmm. um, to not to, to, to try to tame mm-hmm. how the Great Leap Forward was impacting or was unfolding at the grassroots Mm -hmm. and to advocate for the position that the family itself um, was not going to be eradicated anytime soon. That was a long-term goal for the party. Right. And, um, and yes, dining halls, yes, childcare, but we need to we need to improve what they look like, and we need to make sure there's flexibility, and we need to make sure that nursing mothers can can get to their children, and that pregnant women aren't being sent to work to do heavy labor, and um, and that young children are receiving the care and attention that they need, you know. And again, I could cite lots of examples where 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 children were dying because they weren't receiving the supervision that they needed. Or, or or getting severely injured. Right. So um, in a sense, we see this um, incredible push that took place being led by Tsai Chang, who, as I've argued, was, was very much Mao's right hand right. in leading the All-China Women's Federation, mm-hmm. but who I believe believed mm-hmm that Mao did not intend for the family to be immediately dissolved, that he was talking as he was wont to do in this kind of utopic, grandiose way, right? but didn't actually mean for this to roll out as it was happening. I think that that's what Tsai Chong 
mm-hmm. had in her mind. And she and her husband, mm-hmm. um, her husband was the only leader at that time in the fall of 1958 to have a private audience mm-hmm. um, at a particular pivotal moment. Mm-hmm. Whether he said anything to him, mm-hmm. whether Li Fuchun said anything to Mao or not, we mm-hmm. don't know. Right. Whether Tsai Chang said anything to Mao Zedong or not, we don't know. But all we know is that after um, this intense period of mobilization and ad- public advocacy, mm-hmm. including of you know materials that were being published, speeches that were happening, and meetings that we do know about, um, that Mao changed course and the senior leadership changed course. Right. And you can see direct um, arguments coming from out of that mobilization in the documents that were published by the party in December of 1958. And so the struggle over the family, I argue, mm-hmm. um, was a really central piece to the moderation of the Great Leap Forward as it took place over the winter of 1958 and 1959. It would continue within the All-China Women's Federation mm-hmm. um, alongside other leaders who were arguing for a moderation of the Great Leap Forward. And um, the only reason it didn't continue was because Mao Zedong got offended um, by one of his key leaders and he launched a second phase mm, right. of the Great Leap Forward, which is what precipit- which is what in turn launched um, and deepened. There was already famine happening happening in the country. Yeah. And this was the death death knoll for yeah. for for many people in the country. And you need to, you know, for your for your listeners, mm-hmm. what we're talking about is somewhere in the range of 25 to 40 million people perishing yeah. as a consequence of this famine. And so it was the absolute most devastating um, famine to have taken place in the 20th century. Um, and, and certainly I would argue one of the most, if not the most devastating in terms of the actual number of deaths, political event um, in the 20th century. And Sai Chong and her husband came right up behind Mao Zedong to support him when he felt betrayed mm-hmm. by one of the other leaders. And so they were um, enabled mm-hmm. yeah. that deepening of the Great Leap Forward. And that's right. that's the kind of, that's the twist here. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. the relationship, right? right? Yeah. And I mean, you know, thinking of famine, like there, there are a few other, I think that you're right. I was thinking about the, the Ukrainian, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, and there were the a few more. Yeah. Yeah. And Central Asia had mm-hmm. some, yeah. um, and it kind of came from this administration managing, right. Of, yeah. of extraction from, yeah. from the countrysides. Um, and then the fifties, I mean, also Eastern Europe, I mean, other parts of Eastern Europe had, yeah. Um, moments of, of intense famine and, you know, you see all sorts of representations. Um, there's a graphic novel called The Chinese Life that represents that. Mm. Um, and there are others as well that kind of have this this um, just a shrinking of bodies and policies and families and this, yeah, it's um, it, yeah, it's a very complex moment. But And it touched health, right? Health practices. And I think that's chapter nine, 
leaders, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which, of course, uh, you know, uh, traces with very much attention mm-hmm. and prowess the change in, in women's federation. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, to me, it was interesting, the, the discussion about women's health. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I was just curious to, to know more about what happened, whether attachment changed, and we kind of started to, to talk mm-hmm. about this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. you know, I think, I think what I'll, I'll, I'll mention here, I mean, I, I, in the book, Mm-hmm. I trace through, there are a few um, leaders whose yep. stories I trace through yes. the, the book at the grassroots. And, um, and you know, one of what, so one of the things that I, I think I want to emphasize here is that it made a difference, um, the kinds of leaders who yep. were at the grassroots, at the county level, at the provincial level, sure. uh, um, and, and I should say, particularly the county level. As who was able to survive and who wasn't. Um, leadership from everything that I have looked at mm-hmm. with respect to the Great Leap Forward did make a big difference because there was huge variation um, mm-hmm. as as to how, where and how the, the, the famine took hold. Um, and I, I talk about a couple of different situations in terms of health and, and, um, and the role that women leaders played. But so um, in one case where... Uh, although I wasn't able to to track down exactly when this happened, but it was likely in 1959 um, that one woman leader with whom I'd spent quite a bit of time, she and her husband were effectively deposed hmm. because um, the the villagers rose up right. um, about the fact that that she and her husband were keeping grain, hmm. were benefiting from their positions. Um, the, the husband had killed another man. Mm. Like they were, they were widely regarded within the village among people I interviewed as, um, um, you know, as really as restricting food as mm. being responsible mm, I see. for what was taking place. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was before the famine really took hold. Mm. Okay. Right. Whereas, um, you know, other women leaders that I, I had interviewed, you know, and so seeing them as sort of loyal soldiers, but loyal to whom, you know, loyal to Mao, loyal to your family, right? These loyalties were, were being enacted in such a way um, that were um, in a sense, making them impervious to the people with whom they were responsible, if, right. if that makes sense. Yeah. The loyalty comes before all else. Right, right. Um, those who were enacting a, a woman warrior mm-hmm. uh, subjectivity or, or kind of in, um, state of activism, um, that was really interesting here because there were several women I interviewed who, as far as they were concerned, you know, I could work in anything. I could work in cold water when I was menstruating. So this idea that, you know, women can get sick if they, if they are exposed to cold water Mm -hmm. when they're, when, when they're menstruating is an idea that's, it's widely held in Chinese medicine. And it was incorporated into the, the Chinese health regime and public health regime. They, but, you know, young women leaders, I would go into cold water, you know, when I had my period, I didn't care. You know, I, you know, I worked all the way through my pregnancies up right before I gave birth, you know, like this sort of real, um, um, disregard for any 
any kind of notion of having a, a maternal body, as we saw was being um, being projected by the state um, yep. in in earlier chapters. Yep. But some of those same women also sought to protect hmm. women and children and the people for whom they were responsible. And this idea of um, that and 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 willing to stand up to local party leaders, male party leaders, mm-hmm. to ensure that that their health was being protected. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me was very, very striking. Sure. Um, and I I don't believe this was a way to self um, what do you say? Like promote? Yeah, to self-promote. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it is a way for them to look back on that period and sure. it's something they're proud of, of course. But, you know, the same thing can be said of other women I interviewed who were proud of instructing women to be thrifty and frugal in the midst of a famine. Right. Right? Yeah. So I think, again, it's important to be trying to understand, you know, where they're coming from in terms of these very different um, kinds of, again, states of activism and and how those states of activism were informing Mm -hmm. the kind of healthcare or care that women and children were, were receiving um, in the countryside at that particular moment. Absolutely. Yeah. And also, right, there's a conversation with uh, what is, you know, the perception and understanding of care, mm-hmm. right? Because that could be, right, allocation of, of food, but it's also, you know, could be conceived as telling people to be thrifty. Yeah. So, you know, that it's a, it's a Ex- huge... Exactly. 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 Um, And so, you know, for, you know, in the case of of one um, actually village leader Mm -hmm. um, who who was leading um, one of the only women party secretaries in her county at that time, and she was responsible for um, quite a large uh, village. And, um, you know, she went to the township or the commune and, and begged for grain, mm-hmm. begged for a loan. Um, and she said she wept and, you know, pounded on the desk, mm-hmm. which would have been a very risky thing to do yeah. at awesome. that time, a very risky thing to do. Yeah. Um, and so it, it, it's, yeah, it, it, it's a very complex um, as to whether we're going to, move, you know, you know, what, which are the discourses and institutions, but also how is it that we respond in those moments, right? And, and um, what do we have available to us to make sense of what's taking place when everything around you is, is, is saying something different, right? Um, From what your reality is. And, and, you know, throughout the famine, the Chinese Communist Party excelled at dividing people from each other, from propaganda, as we've talked already about the the kind of illnesses, you know, focusing on illnesses that, I mean, it it was just a, it was a a way of, of diverting from the trauma and the, the, the incredible impact of famine as it was spreading across the country at that time, even if the central leadership didn't understand the scale of what was happening, um, 
there were enough leaders reporting back up mm -hmm. um, that, again, you know, the variation at that local level, you know, we really do have to look at how some leaders remained in some sense accountable for the people for whom they led. Right. And, and the woman warrior to me embodies a little bit of that sense of accountability as opposed to the loyal soldier who remained loyal up until absolutely up yeah. until yeah the time of the interview right. right right absolutely this conversation you know is so gripping but um we did take a lot of your time <laughs> I, you know, I have one last question yeah, sure. um, that, uh, you know, it regards your, the projects you're working right now. So mm -hmm. if you could share with us uh, one or, you know, whatever uh, you want to share about what you're working on right now. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thank you again. It's been thank a real you. joy to, to, to get to talk about the book. Um, uh, as I said, I, I mostly do administrative work right now. So it's, it's great to dive back into this project, which I'm still so passionate about. <laughs> I mean, it's so rich, you know. Um, so, but I will say, so one one um, piece I've written and that will be forthcoming next year um, in an Oxford handbook on um, gender in East Asia will um, looks at many of the women I interviewed in in rural China talked about um, the one child policy. So mm -hmm. when I was asking about uh, women work. Yeah. They talked about the one child policy. And again, one of the striking things for me there was um, this kind of the way that they talked about with pride, mm -hmm. the kinds of relational repression in which they engaged mm -hmm. that sounded so familiar to or, or really mirrored the kinds of re relational repression that they talked about with the marriage law. Right. And so the purpose of that chapter is really to try and link those two right. moments in a way that hasn't been linked before. Sure. Um, and to say there are other histories here that were informing how yep. that policy, how the policy, the one child policy was being implemented. You know, not, of course, not all leaders from the 50s and 60s were still working sure. in the 80s, but enough were. Yeah. Right. And the practices that they had developed mm -hmm. over a number of years when the Women's Federation was revived after the Cultural Revolution were then reappropriated. And, and so that's one piece I originally planned to include it in the book, but the book got too long. So, <laughs> um, so that's one piece. And then the other piece is um, work that I've been engaged in now for over 10 years, um, but I'm working on a particular project in relation to it right now, which is advocacy by parents here in Canada mm -hmm. um, on behalf of and alongside of uh, their own uh, transgender children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, that's work that that um, I've engaged in from a number of different directions um, and been involved in politically as well. And mm -hmm. Um, started a, a, a nonprofit organization, Gender Creative Kids, uh, now about a decade ago. And um, but the most recent work we've just finished, we're just finishing interviewing sixty parents wow. of trans kids across Canada um, to uh, really understand um, how they are advocating for their 
young people during and now after the pandemic. And what's so interesting right now is that we have this whole parental rights movement that's emerged. Yeah. Um, very strong focus on quote unquote anti-gender ideology and a really um, uh, um, very difficult moment in terms of uh, focusing on trans kids and, and, and really trying to limit their ability to thrive um, in schools and other places in Canada. So, you know, for me, um, I, you know, I, I have a personal commitment to the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also have an enduring issue, and that is thinking through, again, the way family ties and politics yeah. continue to shape our own understanding of um, our world. Um, and particularly as we come out of the pandemic and people are searching for scapegoats in some ways are, are, and are trying to find meaning and are trying to build a world, others of us who are trying to build a world that's more equitable and inclusive. Um, So that's, that's some of the work I'm doing right now um, with parents and trying to be an allyship with trans folks at this challenging moment. Amazing. And, you know, I commend you for the work. It's so important. Thank you. Very important. And, you know, I look forward to interviewing you next time <laughs> on any of these pieces. <laughs> uh, but for now, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Victoria. Thank you.